You know, you learn a lot about God, and you learn a lot uh, about how He operates if you're just willing to be observant, you know, and Christmas is a great time to be reminded of uh, how much we can learn if we're observant. I, I'm not necessarily the most observant person on the face of the earth. Uh, I, I'm just, you can have a beard down to your waist and shave it, and it'll take me a good four or five weeks to figure out there was something different. I'm just kind of, that, that kind of, are any of you kind of that way, just not real observant? Okay, uh, just wondering. I, uh, when Susan and I were dating, actually it's before we were dating, we just started spending time together, and I asked her, I bet you for a solid month, maybe six weeks, do you wear contacts? I could just not remember if she wore contacts or not, and she would always tell me, no, I don't wear contacts. She was almost about to start wearing a sign, I think, that when I'd pick her up, it said, I do not wear contacts, do not ask. And uh, I'm just not the most observant person on the face of the earth. But if you can be observant, especially this time of season, and when you read scripture, if, you, if we could just kind of put on the, the, that, that quality of being observant, we can learn an awful lot about God. We learn an awful lot about the way he works. And when we read the elements of what we'd call the Christmas story, right, the, uh, the details out of scripture, especially Matthew and Luke, if we can be observant when we read those things and those details, what we find is that God gives us some, uh, some, some real, real inclinations as to how he works in this world. And though he may not work in the same exact miraculous fashion, he still works according to the same, along the same lines. And so if we can just be observant, we can learn a lot about the way he works in life. That's what we've been doing through the course of this little series for about three weeks now. We've looked at a series entitled Christmas Trust. And what we've done for the past couple of weeks is we've looked at, at uh, specific people and the details of that first Christmas. The first week, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Joseph, and uh, we, we looked at what it meant to trust, how he is an example of trust. Uh, it, just a living, breathing example right out of those, uh, those details of the first Christmas of what it means to truly trust God. There was a principle that we pulled out of that passage of Scripture we looked at in Matthew 1, and uh, the, the passage dealt with uh, when Joseph received the news that Mary was carrying the Messiah, that she was carrying uh, the Lord Jesus, and uh, he had a decision to make whether or not to stay with her. He was somewhat engaged. Betrothed is the fancy New Testament word they use. He was engaged to be married to her. It was a binding commitment. And uh, he had a decision to make. Do I stay in this thing or do I not? And uh, what we learned from Joseph there was that trust in God always precedes our obedience to him. That we, if we do not trust him, we are not going to obey him. And if we look at the areas where we disobey God and we just say, God, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do my own thing here. And we disobey him. You could absolutely guarantee that it's at that spot where you choose and I choose to disobey that we don't take him at his word. We don't trust him. And so we do our own little thing rather than trusting him and ultimately following him. So we learned that from Joseph's life. Well, last Sunday we looked at Mary and we looked at some of the details around her part in that first Christmas. And uh, one of the things that we recognize for Mary's life in Luke chapter 2 specifically was that whenever you look at the element of trust, when you look at it specifically, that, that trusting God really puts us in position for him to do great things in our lives. It puts us in a place where if we trust him and if we follow him, we take him in his word, we do what he wants us to do. What that does is, is that that puts the responsibility for our lives completely off of our shoulders and on his. And God takes full responsibility for the life that trusts him and follows him. And Mary did that. She took him in his word. She trusted him. And the reward of that was that she experienced things no one else in history would be able to experience ever. And so you look at Mary's life, and what you see is that, that, uh, that there is a reward. There, there's a payback, so to speak, for trusting God. It's not always dollars and cents. Uh, it's not always bigger cars and bigger, bigger you know, friend lists and bigger homes and those kind of things. But God gives a reward to those who trust him, who take him in his word, 
and who follow him. So we saw that last Sunday. Well, today I want to shift gears a little bit, and what I want us to look at is the invitation to trust. And we're not going to look specifically at a person, but we're going to look at another detail out of the, uh, at a Matthew's version of the first Christmas, and we're going to see just, I believe, a very clear invitation that God gives to every one of us to trust him, to take him in his word, and ultimately to follow him. So let me ask you a question before we get here, um, before we, we dig in. Does God expect us, when we look at, at a knowing him and walking with him, being in a relationship with him, following him, does God expect us to do that off of blind faith? I mean, does God expect us, is what he's really looking for, is it that quality that just throws caution to the wind and say, God, I'm just going to kind of jump out into the unknown here, I'm going to dive out, no parachute, and I'm going to trust you. Is that what trust is? When we look at it from a biblical perspective, is trust, is faith just this picture that, you know, I just got to have courage. I don't care if God shows me what to do or not. God's really just wanting courage in my life. So I'm going to get a running start. I'm going to dive out there and I'm going to trust God to catch me and do whatever he wants with my life. Is that what he's looking for in regards to trust? Or is there something different? In other words, is, is trust kind of like looking for treasure without a treasure map? You know, remember when you were a kid, you'd, you know, you'd have your friend bury some little treasure, a little something in the backyard, and then they'd mark out a little treasure map, go to the tree, take a left, go four spaces, take a right, you know, go to the swing set, take a you know, little U-turn. You know, is it that way? Does God just expect us to, 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 to look for him, and, and yet there's no real map to follow it all? And, and it's those specific Christians that are you know, extra holy that seem to find him, and, and they have all the peace, and they have all the joy, but for the rest of us, you know, we're just kind of left hoping one day we'll find him. One day we'll have all that. Is that the way he operates? Here's, here's what I want to present to you this morning. In Matthew chapter 2, what we're going to see is that God, God goes to great lengths so that people do not have to operate on blind faith. And what we see detailed in the first Christmas is that God goes to great lengths so that we don't have to search for him with no map to follow. In fact, I think what you're going to see here in Matthew chapter 2 is that God will go to whatever lengths that are necessary to do things in our lives to lead us to himself. And what you're going to see in Matthew chapter 2 is in the details surrounding this first Christmas, God uses something as simple as even a star to make sure that people who are hungry for him find him. And that's his desire still today. So here, here's a principle I want to give you, and I hope you'll jot it down. The principle is this, that God gives invitations still today to lead searching hearts to himself. That just as he did 2,000 years ago for the heart that is hungry, the heart that is thirsty, the heart that wants to know him, the heart that seeks truth, it's that heart that God makes sure that he gives invitations, he, gives, he, he, he does things, some small, some big, to make sure that that heart finds him for who he is. Let me give you a passage of scripture before we get to Matthew chapter 2. I'll give you a passage of scripture. We're going to build everything around this. And it's found in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. Notice what it says. It's on the overhead. Jeremiah 29 verse 13. God promises. He says, you will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, now this is not just a little suggestion. This is a promise that God makes. He says, if you seek me, 
and you seek me with all of your heart. In other words, you don't come to me on your terms, but you come to me on my terms, God says. If you search for me with all your heart, not just you know, when you're in a bind, not just when you, you know, you're kind of lonely and you wish God would do something to you know, kind of pull somebody alongside of you, you know, God, can you just bring somebody into my life? Not just those times, but if you search for me genuinely, truly, with all of your heart, and if you hunger for me, and if you thirst for me, and if you desire me above every other thing on this earth, if you come to that place in your life and you look for me with those qualities, I promise you, God says, you will find me. I have a friend on the mission field. He's in a restricted access country, a uh, closed country of the gospel. Uh, if you bring the gospel in there, you're going to bring it in under a different platform. You're going to be a small business owner. You're going to be training people. You're going to be teaching English as a, as another, as a second language. You're going to be coming in as another platform. But this country is close to the gospel. And my friend has been there, he and his family, for years. They've had, I think, five kids in this country. They've been there for years and years. And uh, one of the things that I've heard him tell uh, are stories about how they will pray for the nationals in this country where the gospel is not allowed to come legally. They will pray for God to give uh, dreams to people who live in that country. So that, uh, to the point to where he will often share stories to where they'll engage in conversation about the gospel with someone in, one, in, in their country, and they'll say something along the lines of, uh, you know, we, we had a dream recently that, uh, that there was a man who would bring uh, the good news, a man that would bring the truth. He was the truth bearer, or whatever they would use to describe him. We had a dream recently that a man would come to tell us this truth, and now you've brought the truth to us. And what God does is he prepares the hearts of those people who hunger for him and who thirst for him. And he moves even in miraculous ways to get the gospel where it needs to be. And here's what you're going to find as we look in this passage in in Matthew chapter 2. Is that at a very real point in time, God moved in miraculous fashion to to, to be sure that those who had a heart to know him, a heart to seek for him, to make sure that they would find him. And we're going to see that demonstrated right here beginning in the first verses of Matthew chapter 2. So I hope you'll read along with me. If you, if you didn't bring your Bible, we've got it on the overhead. Uh, if you need a Bible, um, we've got some out on the lobby desk for you to just stop by there and to grab one. Uh, if we run out, then you go to your local Christian bookstore and steal one and um, <laughs> tell them you go to Wilmington Island Methodist Church. And you can, you can do that. And you can have one for yourself. Now, we, we want you to have a Bible. So if you don't have one, stop by the lobby desk and be sure to get one. If you do have one, read along with me. If not, you can read it on the overhead. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... Now let me just stop here for a second and uh, cover some bases here for, for who's being introduced to the story. The Bible mentions in verse 1 a man named Herod. Herod was the king, it says. Now, if you do any type of study at all of history, what you'll find is is that around this period of time, uh, the nation of Israel was under Roman rule. I mean, they were basically occupied by Roman forces, and so they they were a part of the Roman kingdom, the, 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 the Roman Empire. And so Herod had been placed by Roman authorities as king over the land of Israel and, and over Judea. And so he was there serving as the king. He, had ser- he would serve ultimately for over 30 years. Uh, and he was an interesting person. He was extremely ruthless, extremely cruel. In fact, uh, he, was, uh, he was known for having his wife murdered, having several sons murdered, having relatives murdered. And anytime someone posed any type of a threat to his rule, he just eliminated the threat and eliminated the person at the same time. So that, that's the way he was known. He did a lot to, to bring about a lot of uh, construction, 
uh, and an architectural advancement in the, in the city of Jerusalem specifically. But man, at his core, he was just a mean, wicked, nasty person. You would not want him showing up at your birthday party. It would not turn out well. That's the way he was. In fact, he was so ruthless, history tells us that uh, when he fell ill and he knew his days were numbered, he actually literally gave, gave the command for some of the higher-ranking, well-known dignitaries in the city of Jerusalem to be arrested. And he gave the command that at his death, immediately following his death, those people were to be executed so that it would be guaranteed there would be mourning and sadness in Jerusalem on the day he died. That's the kind of person he was. And so Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, the word magi, it can mean a number of different things, and you're you're probably familiar with this. They, They could have been astrologers. They could have been astronomers that studied the stars. They could have been those that studied sacred writings. Uh, they, they could have been those that were involved in magic. I mean, there, there was really a wide variety of what the, the, the word magi really refers to. Uh, there, there's no guarantee there were three of them. Um, you know, you write a song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and everybody just assumes that's kind of what the Bible says. The Bible never tells us how many there were. It doesn't tell us exactly where they were from. They were probably from somewhere in the land of Persia, maybe the, uh, the Arabian Desert, somewhere from that area in the east of where Jerusalem, where the land of Israel was. And so what Matthew tells us here is that in the days of Herod, this, this wicked, cruel king, these magi, these foreign travelers, we, I think we could rightly call them wise men, would arrive in Jerusalem. And here's what they said in verse 2. Their question was simple, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, the question is is simple, but it's extremely significant. They're asking the question. No doubt, word gets back to Herod that they're wanting to know, know, where's the king of the Jews? Now, this would not have gone over very well for Herod because Herod knew, I'm the king of the Jews. I've been appointed by the the, uh, Roman administrators to be king of the Jews. I will reign in this land. Ultimately, he he uh, had reigned for many years at this point, but for over 30 years, he was the king of the Jews for for all he knew. And so when word comes to him uh, of these wise men from the east that he's never met, asking where's the king of the Jews, Herod's going to take note of this. Their, their, their statement is that we saw his star in the east. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us much about this star. It's the first introduction of this that we find in the Gospels. Uh, there, there's not any kind of theology really centered around the star. But what you're going to find here is that that star is there for a specific reason. And it's been placed there miraculously by God himself. Matthew's going to expand on that a little bit as we move forward. Look at the next couple of verses, verses 3 through 6. It says, when Herod the king heard this, when they heard the question, where is he who is king of the Jews? He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now the reference there is to the prophet Micah, who prophesied 700 years before these events were beginning to unfold. Seven centuries before, Micah, inspired by God, is writing these details, and they are unfolding exactly like the prophet Micah had said. Well, notice Herod's response, uh, verse 7 and verse 8. Notice what it says. Then Herod secretly called the Magi 
And he determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And here's what he said. He said, go and search carefully for the child, he says to the, to the, to the Magi. He says, go and search carefully for, them. And when you, for him. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Well, at this exact moment, what we find is that Herod's pants caught on fire because he was liar, liar, pants on fire. He was not telling the truth. He did not want to worship this, this, uh, this new king did not want to worship the Savior. His desire was to ultimately have this rival king eliminated. And what you find later in Matthew, we won't camp there today, but what you find later in Matthew is that that's exactly what he did. Herod, this cruel, wicked king who thought nothing of murdering his own wife, his own sons, his own family, would issue the decree that all male children born within the two-year time frame were to be executed so that there would be no rival king of the Jews in the land of Israel. And so Herod says to the wise men, to the Magi, go to Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem, not far away. Find this king, and when you find him, let me know so that I can worship him as well. Verse 9 says, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, Matthew mentions the star again, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And so here's what's happening. The star that God has placed in the heavens in miraculous fashion is now moving and leading these three hungry, thirsty, searching wise men to the Savior that they're looking for. And I believe that the Bible says exactly what it means, and it means exactly what it says. And when it says that the star went on before them, there is a picture there, literally, that God would use this star to lead them where they needed to be. That because they hungered for truth, because they hungered to to meet this new king of the Jews, that they left their homes and they left their wealth, I believe, largely, and they traveled a great distance. And at the end of the day, what they had to do was to follow the the, the one thing that God had given them— this one invitation, so to speak, that would lead them ultimately to the Savior. And that's exactly what they did. The star went on before them. It stood over the place where the child was. Look at the next couple of verses. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and they worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so here's what you see. When you put all this together, God had already made a promise that for those who search for me with all their heart, they will seek me and they will find me. That was a promise that God had made. Not if you just search for me uh, you know, uh, parenthetically, you know, you're going to live your life, but then there are times you know, where there's kind of a parentheses moment in your life, and during that little season you're going to search for me. But God doesn't say anything about that. He says, when you search for me from the depths of who you are, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of, of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, if you search for me with all of your heart, and you come to me on my terms, I will guarantee that you will find me. And then here you go, 700 years later, you find a, a, a group of men who live in a far-off land who desire and hunger to meet this new king of the Jews, undoubtedly as, study, as those who would study sacred writings. They knew what the prophet Micah had written. They knew that there would be someone who'd be born king of the Jews. They knew this person more than likely would be viewed as a messiah, And because of their hunger and their thirst and their passion, they set out, and God does the miraculous to make sure that they get from where they started to where he was. And he does the same thing still today. 
You see, the, the issue is not, when we think about finding God, you know, really, he pursues us, he draws us to himself, Jesus makes that clear. But there is a point to where if we don't really want to know him, and if we don't really desire him to be king over every aspect of our lives, there's a good chance we're really not going to know him for who he is. And when we look at people who seem to have such a close walk with God, and we know them well enough to know that it is genuine and not just a put on, when we look at people and we see joy despite their circumstances and peace that just seems to pervade everything they experience, and we see a different life, those are people who have come to a place where they have just thrown caution to the wind and said, God, I want to know you for who you are regardless of the cost. And they came through Jesus to a life-changing relationship with him. And these three wise men, these three magi, show us in living, breathing fashion that when our hearts hunger to know him for who he is, what God does is, is that he gives us invitations. He gives us indicators along the way that get us to where we need to be. So how does he do that today? I want to give you four ways that he does that today. Here's who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking to two groups of people. One, I'm speaking to the person, really the people who are here. And you may have been in church for a long time, but you've never genuinely given your life to Christ. You've never come to that place where you've said, you know what, God, I'm tired of sin in my life. I don't want it to characterize me anymore. I'm going to put it down, and I'm going to turn. I'm going to give my whole life to Jesus. I'm speaking to that group that's never done that. You may know all about that option that's on the table. You may have been to church a lot of times. I'm sure you're a very good person, and you've made a difference through your life in a lot of different ways. But you know in your heart, you don't need somebody like me to tell you, you know I've never given my life to Christ. He is not Lord of my life. He is not the king, the master of my boat. You know, I do what I want. I don't follow him. You know, I give lip service, and I show up. But really, I'm still the master of my own life. You know, for, for you, I think if you're honest what you'll see is that even when we don't want him, <laughs> he still does things all around us to draw us to, our, to himself. It's when we begin to hunger and thirst for him that we begin to see those things take shape and we begin to see them clearly as he works around us, drawing us to the Savior. So I'm speaking to that group, but then I'm also speaking to those who are Christians And you may face a huge decision in your life. You may be in a crisis moment in your life. You may be at a place where you don't know what your next step is going to be. I mean, things are coming together. It's crunch time for you. You face a a huge obstacle, a gigantic challenge in your life. You don't know what you're going to do, but you're seeking God. And you're wondering, you know, how is he going to show me what to do here? Then I'm speaking to you as well. Because what God does is, is that when we seek to know him, he begins to move in and around our lives in ways that no one else can, to draw us to himself. Let me give you four ways that he does that. One way that he does that specifically is by creating need in our lives. He creates need. He orchestrates circumstances to where we come to the place to where we realize that we need him. Now, does that mean God's against us? No, he's not against us. We live in a fallen world. We live in a very hard world. And there are times that God will sometimes leverage the difficulties that come in our lives to remind us and to teach us and to show us that we don't have what it takes to make it on our own. It may be a crisis that comes. It may be a difficulty that comes. It may be some other challenge that you face, a trial that comes in your life. 
And what God does is that he will sometimes use those challenges and he will, he will, again, he'll leverage them in such a way to where you realize that I need a savior. I need wisdom. I need direction. I need truth. I need someone to meet me where I am. And it's often those circumstances that God has orchestrated to help us to see as an invitation, as an indicator that we need a savior. You know, if you don't know Christ this morning, I really encourage you to, to look around your life and to see, to see where you are, to see if God's not using circumstances to, to draw you to himself, one that can make good out of the worst of circumstances in life, one that can give peace in the most troubling times, one that can give hope even when everything else seems, all, seems to be lost. God can work good if we just yield things to him, and he uses circumstances many times to draw us to himself. A second thing that he uses is other believers. If you don't know Christ this morning, I want you to just to take a moment, be observant, to kind of look around your life and think, has God begun to put Christians around me in ways that just seems to be uncanny? I mean, are, are, there, are there believers that seem to be living out their faith in my workplace? Are there believers that seem to be living out their, play, their faith on my campus, you know, at the gym where I go, in the places that I seem to, to, seem, seem to always go? Is God putting Christians in my path like I can't get away from them? You know, and they just seem to be infested with joy, and they're overcome by, by peace. And it seems like their lives make sense. And, and it seems like as though that, you know, that, that, that they, they've got the secret, secret ingredient you know, that I'm longing for. Look around. Has God put those kinds of people in your life? And then, Christian, let me, let me just challenge you for a second because you may be that person in the life of an unbeliever around you. And you may be God's validation in the life of a coworker who doesn't know Christ in the life of a friend, in the life of a neighbor, and they're looking at you because they know that you have a relationship with God. Are you willing to be that kind of a person who trusts God so greatly and who lives life with such, such abandon to Him that when others look at you, they say, that's what I want for my life? Because He may have positioned you in the lives of other people who don't know Him as an invitation, as, a, as an indicator, as kind of a moving star to help lead them to the Savior. So, so God uses today, he uses circumstances, he uses other believers in our lives. A third thing he uses is his word. He uses his word. You know, Christian, when you face a, a big decision, you come to place a crisis in your life, and uh, you really need to hear from God. It's at those times that you're grateful that you put in the effort and the work of reading his word consistently over a period of time it's hard to play catch up you know if a crisis sweeps into my life it's hard for me to play catch up at that point and to try to get from God everything I need in the span of two or three days it's when we spend time with him developing that relationship as believers in his word that when times of crisis come, when trials come, when big decisions have to be made, what God does is, is that he gleans and he draws and he brings to the surface the wisdom that comes from his word and he helps us to be able to live it out in the details of our lives. And what will often happen is when we read his word, it's his word like a star that will draw us and lead us closer to where he is. You know, I shared last week that whenever I went off to seminary, that, that uh, it was one of the biggest decisions I had made at the time. And uh, you know what God used to help confirm for me that step that I needed to take? He used two passages of Scripture specifically to the point to where I knew where God wanted me to be. I just had to step out in faith and follow. 
and he'll do that for you. The book of John, by the way, is written for those who don't know Jesus to ultimately have everything they need to make a decision about whether or not he will be the Messiah, the Savior of their life. It was written for unbelievers to, to have the, the, everything they needed to make a decision about Jesus. And so his word is something that he uses today. And then the fourth thing I'd say God uses as an invitation to draw people to himself would be the presence of his Holy Spirit. Uh, look at what it says. You don't have to turn there, but look at what it says in John chapter 16. Jesus in his ministry says here in chapter 16, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world according, or concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who helps those who are unbelievers to have that sense of conviction in their life that, you know, the message of the gospel is true. Jesus is the Savior that I need, and this is what I need to do. I need to turn from my sin and place my faith in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that validates all of that. He's the one who validates that for us. And so when we look at the, the elements of that first Christmas and we read the story as true as can be, we read the story of Mary and Joseph and how they made the, made the trip to, uh, to Bethlehem. We look at all the details and no room in the inn and all the things that come out of there. And we've got all kinds of Christmas songs today all about it. And we read all kinds of Christmas stories about it. If we're just willing to go back to the word and when we look there, what we see, if we're willing to be observant, is that God still works today in much the same way as he did back then. And when he looked at traveling wise men from a distant land who thirsted for the Savior, he did what it took to get him there. And for those who hunger and thirst for him today, if you're willing to seek him with all of your heart, no strings attached, with reckless abandon, he'll be sure he promises that you'll find him. He moved a star 2,000 years ago. Today, he puts sold-out believers in your path. He gives you his word to bank on. He validates his truth with the Holy Spirit speaking into your life. And he will even orchestrate circumstances to bring you to the place to where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one to follow. And I'll just say one thing before we're done. One more thing you've got you to be sure of. You've got to know this is that even though he will provide indicators and invitations along the way, he's going to make sure it will be a necessity that you still apply faith. He will be sure that even though he leads you and he gives you everything you need to make the right decision, to go the right direction, to trust your life to Christ, even though he gives you everything you need to draw, your, draw you closer to himself, he is going to be certain. He is going to leave the necessity for faith. Those wise men, <laughs> I mean, come on. If you have a star moving across the sky, there's a point where it kind of becomes a no-brainer, you know, that, that I think there's something going on here, Right? They saw everything that you read about. They saw the star moving, leading them closer and closer to the Savior. But they still had to have the faith to follow. God doesn't write messages in the heavens, in the clouds for you to read. You're not going to get a letter from heaven, right? That's written, you know, in some secret code to where you know, oh, this is from God. You're not going to have that. You've got his word. You've got his spirit. He orchestrates circumstances, puts people in your path. But at the end of the day, you've got to be willing to take him at his word to trust him with all your heart, and to follow. He will make sure 
that the element of faith is still needed because we walk what? By faith, not by sight. So here's my question to you as we close. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ today? Do you have a relationship with him in such a way to where you can say, you know, Brooks, there's been a point in my life where I have turned from my sin that separates me from him. And I have invited Jesus, the Savior, God himself, to come and to take over my life, to forgive me and to make me who he wants me to be. Do you have that relationship with him? If you don't, I want you to look around and just see what is God doing to draw me to himself? Not to draw me to a religion, not to draw me to a church, but to draw me to himself in relationship. What is he doing? Because if you observe and you look around, he loves you far too much to leave you on your own. And I think what you'll see is that he's been working all around you to convince you, to convict you, and to draw you to a relationship with the Savior that will change everything for you. And if you're a believer, you made that decision in your life, but you face a choice, you're in a crisis, in the midst of a trial, the wheels seem to be coming off, whatever may be going through, you're going through in your life, what you'll find is, is that same obedience and that same trust are required, that as you step out in faith and follow where he leads, taking him in his word, hey, he will take full responsibility for your life from that point forward. And I promise you, he will never let you go. God, thank you for the invitation, an invitation to trust. Lord, a star in a sky was an invitation to foreign travelers to just trust. And if they saw what you were doing, and if they followed, they'd find you. Or the angel that came to Joseph that said, take Mary as your wife, was an invitation to trust. He could have gone his own way and charted his own course, but he chose to take you at his word to absorb the cost of that. And he chose to follow. Lord, Mary, a young teenage, virgin Jewish girl, receiving the news that she would carry the Messiah. She could have resisted. She could have fought. She could have complained. But Lord, she took you at your word. She trusted. And she followed. And Lord, here we are 2,000 years later. And there are people that are sitting right here that have heard this message that have been a part of this service today. And Lord, they've never given their lives to Jesus. They don't know the joy of being forgiven. They don't have the hope and the assurance that when their time on this earth is done, that heaven waits. It's just a big question mark. It's a big hope so. It's a a guessing game of them hoping their good will outweigh their bad. And Lord, you don't work that way. Lord, you, you do what's needed to draw thirsty hearts to yourself. And Lord, if we're honest and we look around, I think we can, we can see all the evidence we need in your word that points us to Jesus and your circumstances that remind us that we can't make it on our own. Other believers oftentimes that speak into our lives and, and even your Holy Spirit in our lives that validate, for some even right where they sit this morning, they know in their heart that what I've said is true. And they know that they need a Savior and that you're the only one, Lord Jesus, that can feel that in their lives. And it's not an issue of evidence anymore but it's an issue of trust. Do they trust you enough to give everything to Christ? And so, Lord, I pray today that the right decisions would be made. Lord, that those that don't know a Savior will leave here in relationship with you because right where they sit today, they invite Jesus to forgive them and take take over everything. Lord, I pray for Christians that face hard decisions and trials, that, Lord, that they would have the trust to know that as they follow you, 
Lord, that you're going to work everything out in a way that gives you honor. And so, God, give us that, give us the wisdom, give us the faith to take you at your word and to follow. So bless these decisions now that we need to make, God, to help us to do that. And may you get the glory through it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.